Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this weekly program. Uh, today's the, the first day of our new time for the broadcast. We actually began Deep in Scripture a couple years ago at this time period with EWTN. And then for a time, we switched to an evening broadcast. And then starting today, we're back to the 2 o'clock Eastern Time regular broadcast. So those of you who normally see a repeat of the Journey Home program may be turned in for that. Well, you're hearing me in a different way. You're hearing me on the Deep in Scripture program, and I thank you for joining us. This uh, program comes to you over EWTN Radio, and we're broadcasting from the Coming Home Network International studio in Ohio. On this program, what we try to do, I have guests that join me to talk about their favorite scriptures, and what we're focusing on are verses that the guests never saw before. In other words, these are particular texts that uh, particularly help them discover the beauty of the Catholic faith. And often it may have been a verse that they never noticed before in Scripture, or it may have been a verse that they were well aware of, but um, didn't see what it said. In other words, their particular interpretation put a spin on that verse, and then through the work of grace they were able to recognize what that verse in fact said, what it was intended to say, how it is intended to be understood, and often that requires change in their lives. And, and I, if you've watched the Journey Home program, you know that I've uh, often talked about verses I never saw, and my guests have done the same. Very often that's one of the main keys that the Holy Spirit uses to awaken us to the beauty of the Catholic Church. Now this program is connected to a website, deepinscripture.com. If you go to deepinscripture.com, you'll see the connection to all the other Coming Home Network information, as well as the work that the Coming Home Network does. But if you went there now, you would see a picture of our guest today, who is Mark Ayers. And you'll see the scripture that Mark has chosen. And actually, Mark has chosen a fistful of verses, and we'll talk about those in a moment. You'll also see his bio, and let me read that to you uh, in case you can't get to the website. Mark, is a, it's, a, it's a great privilege that he is joining us on the program. Mark James Ayers is an attorney with Bradley Arndt Bolt Cummings, LLP, in Birmingham, Alabama. He was raised in the Presbyterian tradition. He attended Reformed Calvinist Seminary before entering law school. After many years of becoming, quote, deep in history, Mark was received into the Catholic Church in 2005, along with his wife, uh, Donna, and now teaches subjects such as church history and apologetics around the Diocese of Birmingham. Mark and Donna have three children, Mark Jr., Julia, and Tucker. Mark's been a guest on The Journey Home, and he also has a website. If you go to deepinscripture.com, you can link to a number of wonderful sites that I encourage you to, uh, that would be encouragement to your own faith, but also there's a link to his website that will tell you more about his work. Also, if you go to deepinscripture.com, there's a link to actually watch me sit in the studio and talk to you. So if you'd like to watch live, go ahead and do that. You can click on the website. Mark is going to talk about several verses that were important to him. And as a matter of fact, the two top verses that he chose are two verses that I would have contained in my list of verses that I never saw. And in a moment, I'll read those to you. But I want to remind you, we'd love to have your phone call or email about a question that you have for Mark or for me. 
uh, either about this program or particularly about the verses that we're talking about, you can call us at 800-664-5110 or the regular Coming Home Network phone number is 740-450-1175 or you can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. If you give us a call, you won't come live onto the radio, but we'll take your question. They'll pass it on to me, and then Mark and I will discuss it if we have time. The scriptures that Mark has chosen for us are familiar verses, especially for those on the journey to the Catholic faith. They're very important verses. Let me read those. We'll take a break, and then Mark will join us. The first is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And actually, this is the verse that truly awakened my heart to the Coming Home Network, I mean, to the Catholic Church, excuse me. But let me read this because Mark sees this as his top verse that he'd like to discuss. It's, Paul writes, If I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. The second verse that Mark wants us to focus upon is Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are a couple other verses we'll look at, but we'll do that in the midst of our discussion. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing me on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. During his public ministry, our Lord drove out demons and gave his apostles authority to do the same. Tune in when President of Human Life International, Father Tom Eitenauer, joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about exorcism. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and I'm joined by Mark Ayers. Are you there, Mark? I'm here. Hey, Hello, welcome Marcus. to Deep in Scripture. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for taking uh, some time out of your big schedule. I'm sure you're busy as a lawyer, right? Uh, pretty busy, pretty <laughs> busy, but it's uh, it's never too busy to uh, to come on a show like this. Well, thanks a lot. I, I appreciate it. I also want to remind the audience that you had appeared on the Journey Home program, and I and I appreciate that. Uh, and you've you've mentioned to me that you've gotten some nice comments about uh, what we talked about on your program. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, I've gotten emails and other comments from from people uh, all over the country uh, that saw the show and, and thought it was helpful uh, helpful for them and kind of helped <laughs> um, 
them deal with either certain misconceptions or uh, just clarifying uh, points. Um, they, they, I heard from several people that were kind of in the same the same background as myself, and mm-hmm. and appreciated even if they didn't totally agree. They still appreciated how it how it uh, it helped them at least brush away some of, some of the things that, uh, that that we all tend to 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 get wrong in the in the discussion. Well, I I've often felt that that's one of the important aspects of the Journey Home program is that each of my guests comes from a completely different background, but there are people listening who are coming from those backgrounds even as they're listening. And so the Lord hopefully links people up so that we can help them hear the fullness of the gospel, and I appreciate that. Mark, you chose a a whole fistful of verses, as I mentioned. (laughs) I I had a chance to read the 1 Timothy 3 passage and the Matthew 16, and uh, if you if the audience went to deepinscripture.com, you would see there posted the other verses, which you might get into, Isaiah 22, Luke 22, and then, and then Luke, the passage of the Magnificat, and, and uh, uh, the, the verse about Mary in Luke chapter 1, and then 2 Samuel. So we got a, a lot of stuff. But particularly, uh, Mark, you chose 1 Timothy 3.15, and maybe in general, why this passage? Well, this passage is... Is really something of a of a, of, a, of a looking back passage. It's kind of looking back on this passage after my kind of several year process of of reading the the, the church fathers and church history, reading about the sacraments, kind of walking my way into into the church. Um, looking back upon this passage that I had read any number of times, uh, it everything kind of kind of fits together uh, a bit. I mean. The phrase that it's the church that is the pillar and bulwark or foundation of the truth um, has a particular meaning for me, just given my background mm-hmm. in apologetics. Um, just to give you a, l- a little bit of, of, of history there, um, I studied for many years uh, a method called presuppositional apologetics, which is a particular method uh, that's a lot of times seen in uh, uh, Presbyterian circles, uh, it differs a little bit from from what's what's sometimes called classical apologetics in that uh, sometimes when people are doing apologetics and that just means you know they're giving an answer for their faith they're defending their faith they will get into a back and forth about uh, questions about morality or questions about truth and uh, and you know uh, those discussions are very good and and we need to have those what what my method really asked was a little bit more f- fundamental. And it was very effective in dealing with, let's say, uh, your standard atheist or or other non-believers, because it asks, all right, before we get into all those discussions, we need to ask more fundamentally, what do you have to have? What is necessary as a starting point before you can make sense out of any truth claim? Uh, An easy way to see what I'm talking about, so as we don't get too philosophical, uh, a lot of times you see this in debates with, with an atheist, for example. An atheist shows up and says, uh, there is no God, and so forth. All things are material. There are no immaterial things like spirit or anything like that. Uh, everything is just atoms bouncing around. But then they want to turn around and make moral claims, mm-hmm. like uh, the, sir, this and this is immoral, or uh, some particular act uh, is moral or not. And what my method would ask is, well, now, wait a minute. First, in order to even begin to talk about morality, as some kind of universal concept, like everyone knows that murder's wrong, everyone knows that rape's wrong, so forth, you would have to have a you know some some standard of morality that would be universal. 
Uh, how do you have that on an atheistic system where there's no God, there's really no standards, everything's just atoms bouncing around? And so it would kind of silence the atheist in saying, well, wait a minute, you can't make moral claims because you have no basis, you have no foundation in order to be able to, to make sense of any of that. Uh, you could say it with regard to, say, laws of logic. You know, atheists want to show up and debate, um, well, debate anything, really. You have to depend on laws of logic that apply to everybody, uh, that are universal and they're immaterial. They're not made out of some substance. They're, they're laws. We all take that for granted, but we have to point out to people who say, no, there are no immaterial things. Everything's made out of atoms. Well, then you have to say, well, now, then how do you have laws of logic? Uh, you want to debate using laws of logic as though there are some kind of universal laws that are out there that are binding to everybody, but how do you have those in an atheist universe? How do you have laws of science? How do you have laws of morality or anything like that? So that method really asks, before we can talk about things that are true, we have to ask what, what is first necessary to even make sense out of that. And so it's a very effective method. It's, uh, uh, I taught it for many years and still obviously in, in, in perhaps a little bit different way, uh, teach it now. Now, let um, me ask you this, Mark, because I, I think that's a powerful method. I, I can see how in our culture <clears throat> where uh, admittedly there are f- a, a high percentage of people that have another, never studied philosophy uh, and a high percentage of people that sadly have bought into scientific materialism and, and bought into right. atheism and all of that, but probably have not sat back and thought about the things you're talking about at all. So it seemed to me that apologetic would be a powerful uh, way to set them back on their heels. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I think of one very good example, and there's any number of debates where this has been used and it's been just devastating. One of the one of the great arguments that sometimes we as Christians hear uh, from from non-believers, and again, I, I, I should point out these are these are logical arguments if you get to that point in the, in the discussion with the non-believer i would not suggest you know jumping immediately to your hardest philosophical argument you always want to win the person in a gentle and kind spirit rather than than the argument but when you do get into the arguments uh a lot of times you hear the problem of evil uh atheists frequently cite well you know how how could there be evil in in a universe where god is all you know all powerful and all good and so forth um, the quick response to that is, there is no problem of evil in an atheist universe because there is no evil. You can't even begin to posit a question of evil because there's no That's such right. thing. <laughs> in order to be even be able to begin the discussion, we all have to agree that, in fact, there is a standard that's universal. It's not just dependent on my belief, but there is an ultimate objective standard of good and evil. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we can begin to talk about problems of evil and, and how does that work theologically and so forth. But an atheist can't talk about that type of stuff. But now they let me ask you. They would have to borrow from our theistic worldview in order to get a standard, which is God. God is the standard. And uh, and then they could begin to talk about it. And which, so that you see how it how it mm-hmm. very quickly kind of sidesteps the irrelevant stuff. I mean, not that that question is irrelevant, but it's certainly irrelevant to an atheist. It brings it gets, them down it, to the bottom line. Right. It gets right to the, the foundation of... Of, of their belief. Now let me ask you then, Scott, you, they don't, they're blind to how much they have accepted from Christianity as a foundation for their morals. They just don't see it, and that's what you're pushing them to. Right. But the, you can also see then, and which is what I'm assuming you're going to talk about, that how this very method of apologetics actually backfired 
because <laughs> tell the audience then, okay, when you're pushing them to the wall, what did you presume was the trustworthy pillar and foundation of truth for you? Uh, that's a pretty easy answer. I mean, always from the very beginning, uh, given my background uh, as a you know an Orthodox Protestant Presbyterian, the Bible was always the sole foundation for faith and 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 practice. Um, that was something of a catchphrase. You know, the Bible alone is our sole uh, uh, foundation of faith and practice. It would be. I mean, it, I would have very quickly said. If someone had had come up to me on the street and said, "What is the pillar and foundation of our tr- of the truth, meaning the the Christian mm-hmm. truth?" Mm-hmm. I would have instantly said, "Well, the Bible, of course, the the scriptures. Those are that's the pillar. That's everything is judged in, in accordance with that." And what's interesting is the Bible itself, as you read just a minute ago, um, from First Timothy three fifteen, says that it's the church of the living God that is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And just to give a little bit of background about that, I mean, in that chapter, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, setting up the, the what what is involved in the office of a bishop, what's involved in the office of a deacon, and he's saying, I'm writing to, the, uh, to you about these things because I hope to visit you soon, but if I should be delayed, you'll know how to behave in the household of God, because, of course, he's ordained him to to oversee that church. And then he says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. And I, I mean, again, I saw that many times, but given my framework, the kind of the theological template Mm -hmm. that I had, that I judged everything by, I just read right past it. If I saw pillar and foundation of truth, my brain just said Bible, and I never really caught it. It wasn't until later, uh, down the line, when I started to look at things like the history of the Church, the history of the compilation of the canon, and you and I talked a little bit about this uh, on the journey home, Mm -hmm. but that alone um, really got me thinking, because the reality is is that you didn't even have an authoritative Bible for some 400 years after Christ. Um, Just to give your listeners a, a quick run through history, um, Christ goes to heaven, he ascends to heaven. There's probably about 40 years after the, you know, he's founded the church, mm-hmm. and, he, and he gives them the Great Commission and ascends. There's a probably about a 40-year period where nothing is written. Um, 30 to 40 years, nothing is written. They're depending, <laughs> and, 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 on, they're depending on the oral transmission of what Jesus said. Even the verse you quote Paul is saying that his intent, his preference, right, would to right. have been there in person to tell them by mouth, but in case he isn't there to give oral instruction, then his second choice is this written letter. Right, and, and the written letters were always meant to remind, mm-hmm. almost always, to remind them of what they had already been taught, because somebody had already started to fall away from the teaching that had given, been given to them by the apostles or by those men that the apostles ordained, um, because that is, in fact, what happened. Christ uh, uh, ordains the apostles, sends them forward. They then um, ordain other men as bishops and priests, and they continue that, that chain, and that's how the church spread from the very beginning. Um, and there was teaching, and like I say, there was some 40-year period where there was nothing written. They didn't have anything to look at, but that wasn't an issue because they had the the the, uh, the apostolic succession those that stood in that line either the apostles uh, the apostles themselves or their uh, immediate successors 
and were able to teach, and they knew how to receive the Eucharist, and they knew who to receive the Eucharist from, and that was the body and blood of Christ, and that was kind of the centrality of it. And then as things came up, and this is important for everyone to, to, to get, uh, and was a real eye-opener for me, the Bible wasn't written as, okay, now we're going to write everything down, and this is going to be all you need, and so you can just throw away the rest of this stuff, meaning the church, and now you've just got this written compilation, and just go forth and read it on your own. When the Bible was written, it was written by the church, for the church, in response, almost always, to some particular issue that was going on. Galatians was primarily directed at the Judaizers that were going on there, and that particular problem, and then Corinthians had its own problems, and things would come up, and by the way, that, didn't, that wasn't just the scriptures, that was, that's all of church history, yeah, when things right. would come along some controversy or heresy or something, then the church would speak authoritatively on things, but in their day-to-day practice, it was the church just acting as the church in the apostolic line, giving the, the sacraments, um, administering them, administering the Eucharist, and so forth. And so, but what you have as far as the canon, and this is just so crucial to, to, to uh, remember, is you have this long period, you have this 40-year gap of nothing, then things start to be written down in response to just specific little problems here and there um, in various regions, not all regions, uh, and those are collected over time, but there's also any number of other books and letters and so forth written by any number of other people that are also floating around the churches at, at that time. And so, I mean, there is some general consensus about that, that, it, that kind of accumulates over a couple hundred year period as to things that they think should be considered canonical, in other words, inspired, actual inspired text, but not total agreement. Mm-hmm. Some churches had some things that they thought were canonical that later it turned to be when the church finally decided the question were not included in the canon. Other churches had other things that they thought should have been included that ultimately were not. And so there was a lot of, there was, there was substantial disagreement about these things, and it's not until the late 4th century, the early 5th century, there, in, a, in a couple of councils there, that you actually have an authoritative, what we would call the New Testament, an authoritative New Testament declared, in fact, by the church. So, again, there's a 400-year period where, in effect, you don't have a New Testament. Yeah, and the idea of a, of a sola scriptura uh, is, is absurd. And I think something else, and Mark, you and I, because of our background, and, and I'm guessing maybe some of our viewers, we are so spoiled, if you will, accustomed to having a Bible that we can hold in our hands and we think of it as the inspired, infallible Word of God, which as Catholics we truly believe that it is, that even when in those early centuries when they were trying to discern which of these letters was to be considered canonical, they probably weren't even thinking of it in the way that we do. The question then was which of these letters can be read in liturgy? That was the question. Mm-hmm. And different churches were reading different letters on the gathering of the liturgy. They were reading the, apostle, the memoirs of the apostles, it says in Acts, and that's also what Justin Martyr calls the, the, you know, the, the apostles' writings, passing on their reading them in liturgy. And the question was, well, wait, should, these, should the Didache or the first letter of First Clement, should they be read in liturgy? So finally, at the end of the fourth century, the bishops gathered, decided this is the list. And uh, now we've over centuries, you know, your background and my background, 
we almost view the Bible as the as the manual for our life. Right. Like, it, it came down from heaven in complete form uh, early on, and you know once you once you get that, that's you know that's it, and and that's just really not at all what happened. And it, it's important to remember. We say sola scriptura, and I did, you know, very strongly. So I'm not going to go outside the Bible for anything. But the problem is, is that there's no list from God as to which books are supposed to be in the Bible. (laughs) There's no list in the New Testament or anywhere else saying, here's the inspired, infallible canon of the New Testament. And let me say something else before I take a break, Mark, uh, because I want you to come back uh, with that. We need to take a break, but I want to make sure that I remind the audience that even those like Martin Luther and John Calvin and their followers that that really spread this idea of the the sufficiency of scripture alone did not recognize that it was sufficient because Martin Luther has his catechisms he has right. his books and John Calvin has a two volume institute of christianity right. because they did not read the bible alone they read it through the lenses that were provided for them by their followers. Maybe we can continue with that. Let's sure. take a quick break, and we'll be back on the other side, Mark. Right. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody, and I'm joined today by Mark Ayers, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled, Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you too will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. And uh, again, let me remind you that the deepinscripture.com website, if you're able to check out the internet, you can uh, watch our program live. You can also see the scriptures that Mark and I are discussing. Uh, we'd love to have a phone call or an email from you, uh, whether we can answer it during the program or not. The phone number again is 800-664-5110 or 740-450-1175, or you can send me an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Mark, on the uh, your choice of scriptures, you also meant in, mentioned Matthew sixteen nineteen. Do you want to go on into that, or do you want to continue with First Timothy? Well, uh, I want to finish up first, uh, just sure. one point about, we, we were talking a second ago about how there's no list of, of which books are, are supposed to right. be in the canon, right. and uh, you had mentioned that really nobody, including me, you know, or any other uh, Protestant that was, that was out there, nobody actually did sola scriptura. Right. I mean, it just <laughs> didn't happen. You'd have the Bible, but you'd also have a wall of commentary and so forth, but normally you pick the commentary in accordance with what you kind of already believed. Right. And typically we believed what was passed on to us by people that we trust. I mean, that's how human beings 
do things. I mean, people that you trust that are loving towards you, teach you up in a particular faith, you trust them, and, and so you believe what they've handed to you. Um, and that's and that's fine. Uh, it's just at some point there does need to be a little bit of self-reflection to ensure that what we have we can have confidence in, and that's and that's what began this process. And and uh, you know for for me even back then when I was teaching apologetics in in the in the Protestant Church, I kept running into questions where people would say, okay, I can I see your point about the atheist and all this how they don't have really a a basis to talk about morality or logic or science or any of that stuff because their worldview can't sustain it, can't make sense out of it. But what about your own worldview? How do you know that those books that are in your Bible that you keep waving around come from, that they're actually apostolic, that they actually are inspired by God? And then how do you know that there's not more that are out there. I mean, we hear a lot about this now from the Da Vinci Code stuff and mm-hmm. the Gnostic Gospels and all these mystery Gospels that, and, and other books that were written way back when. How do you know those aren't supposed to be in there? And what I didn't realize at the time, although, because I didn't really have a very good answer for that. My method, my apologetics method, did not give me a good answer for that, but mm-hmm. I, just, I just kept shuffling that to the back. Anytime something like that would come up that would directly address the canon, I would usually say something like, well, there was a, there was a consensus early on, that's kind of settled, and you can't challenge it now. But that's a terrible answer. Mm-hmm. That, that's really not an answer. And so, you know... Well, didn't one of the teachers from your seminary say that we have a, 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 an infallible... What did, what did he say? They're infallible books and a fallible canon? Uh, well, sure. I mean, we would say we would come up with with phrases like that, mm-hmm. um, which but, which but, if, if it's a fallible canon, then right. you can't know that there isn't an infallible book floating around somewhere we don't know of, or that maybe one of them in the books isn't. Right, and it's not enough to say, well, these other books are weird or. Uh, strange in some way. Well, there's plenty of weird and strange stuff in the Bible that we have now that That's we don't right. challenge. Yeah. You know, a talking donkey, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all, all sorts well, of Revelation, stuff. a lot of things in the Revelation. Oh, yeah, are, there, there's all kind of things. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so that wasn't a very good answer. And then, you know, ultimately, I had to start thinking about, oh, well, all right, what am I assuming when I hold up the Scriptures? And then when I looked at history, over this long, and it took a long process. I was very, very skeptical of anything that it was even remotely Catholic. Um, but as I saw, oh, that's how the Bible came into being, and this is how church history unfolded, I saw that every time I picked up the Bible, I was rely- and, and I was relying on it as being a complete set of books, as being the only set of books, and being an inspired set of books, I was relying on the authority of at least the early church, which was the Catholic Church, um, to declare these things. They declared it in a series of councils, and from that point on has never been challenged, until Martin Luther challenged it a little bit, because he didn't like mm-hmm. some of the books. But but really, every every New Testament that everyone holds up right now, Protestant, Catholic alike, um, if you hold it up and rely on it, you are in fact relying on the authority of the Catholic Church. And what I came to realize, and this will, this will start to get into the next verse right. in, Matthew, in Matthew 16, mm-hmm. But I started to realize that I had to ask myself the same question that I was asking of the atheist. I had to say, all right, wait, what do I have to have in order to make sense out of my reliance on, for example, this as the canon or any of the beliefs that we, that we hold to? Well, I have to have some body 
with authority that's able to answer those questions, that's able to answer the questions about which books are supposed to be in the Bible, that's able to answer the questions about the divinity of Christ, which we discussed uh, on, on, the, on our Journey Home episode, and the Council of Nicaea had to define exactly you know, the nature of Christ, because there was great debate in the, in the Christian world about how exactly uh, Christ fits in and his divinity and, and so forth. Who gets to answer those questions? Either everybody, just on their own, gets to answer these questions. If that's the case, then I can have no confidence whatsoever that I mean, if it's just a bunch of guys in a room sat down and and uh, and said, okay, these are the canon, these are the canonical books. This is going to be the New Testament. If they didn't have actual spiritual authority as the church, as the pillar and bulwark of the truth, to do that, if if, if it was yep. just their opinion, then there's absolutely nothing that stops me today from saying, well, I think there should be some other books in there, or I really don't like Galatians or Hebrews or James, so I'm going to knock them out. I mean, there's there's no basis. It's not enough to just say, well, but we've held to him for a long time. So what? You know, yeah. that that maybe we've been wrong this whole time. You know, I was going to say that that's probably a, a question you may have received from an atheist that you were, <clears throat> you know, uh, trying to, to get down to the bottom. He's going to turn to you and say, wait a second, why should I accept that book? Yeah. I mean, he, he would he would probably say, I mean, if he was being honest, if I was pushing him on his atheist convictions, he might say, okay, I can see what you're saying. I can't as an atheist. If I just believe that, that all of life is just atoms bouncing around, then maybe I don't have a good reason to talk about good and evil and this type of stuff. But, and maybe, maybe I should believe that there is some kind of deity out there that, gives, that, can, that can kind of give us a basis to believe these things. But how do I know it's yours? And how do I know that even your version is correct? And when you quote Scripture to me, how do I know that you're interpreting it correctly? I mean, you guys have some, you know, thirty or 40,000 different Christian bodies that are all out there mm-hmm. saying that they've got the correct voice, um, and those are real, legitimate questions. And that is that was the pinch mm-hmm. <laughs> that, um, that, I, that I got to. And the more I studied the history of the, of the Church, uh, the more I studied the, how things have actually developed, the more I saw... That, you know, while my faith had taught me much of the meat of Christianity, there was just something that was missing. And that, and that missing part was that one part that was necessary as a precondition to be able to know, define, and defend Christianity with any type of confidence. And that is, there has to be a living body that was established by Jesus that has authority to speak to these questions throughout the ages. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, I'll just say it right up front, excuse me, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's immediately the Catholic Church. I just knew it's got to be somebody, there has to be somebody that can speak to these things with authority. If I don't have that, if it's just me and a totally arbitrary Bible that I don't even know is whether it's complete or right or anything else like that, then we don't really have much hope if we think about it. We can believe something, but we don't have a good basis to believe it. And so once I figured out that it's got to be some living body, then I started to look through history and found, well, there is, in fact, one living body that was originated at the time of Christ that went out and, uh, you know, through the apostolic succession, 
through a, down through 2,000 years has, has continued to do this. Now, at the time, I, I said, okay, well, that's the type of body I'm looking for, but it can't be the Catholic Church because they believe all kind of crazy stuff. <laughs> and then it just took a long time to, for example, the papacy, work through which, the stuff. which we'll get to. Um, but let me ask you before we go there, because I, I want us to go there, but I have a question then about the issue of church. Sure. When I first saw this passage, and uh, it was actually my seminary classmate, Dr. Scott Hahn, who pointed it out to me after he'd become Catholic, it didn't, as you mentioned, it didn't make me Catholic immediately. It actually made it worse for me because, and this is what I want you to talk about, from my background, the idea of the church, any church being some kind of pillar and bulwark of truth did not make sense to me mm-hmm. because I mean, how did you understand the authority of the church? Would you have, I don't know if you were PCA. I was PCA. Well, I was raised ARP and then later joined a PCA church. But they're, Would they're, you have thought of that then, the give, uh, compared to every <laughs> other Christian denomination, that the PCA, therefore, was the God-ordained pillar and foundation of the truth? It, it, to be honest, we never really got that deep into that. Mm-hmm. I, I believed that, uh, well, this is, you know, this is a church. And that the church was basically this is kind of invisible entity. Oh, you that, said something uh, wrong that, because the police are after you. I can hear you in the background. There. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> hopefully, though, hopefully they're not after me. But uh, yeah, I, I would have thought, as many do, that that the church is just kind of an amorphous, invisible mm-hmm. entity that doesn't really have necessary, you know, any particularly necessary structure. Different groups have their own structures that they've selected that That's they think yeah. are. are you know, kind of mm-hmm. uh, closer to what the earliest church did or, or so forth. Um, and I would have said that uh, without really analyzing it very much that, yeah, my local church has, uh, because because we're all together and we've all kind of committed to a particular creed, then we can kind of ordain. And that's an interesting question. Can a group of people just kind of ordain somebody to be a spiritual leader? I started asking those those mm-hmm. types of things. and mm-hmm. But I, I think I would have said yes. Um, in fact, as a congregationalist, I believe that verse in Matthew that says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, right. there am I in the midst of you. That's a church. Yeah. Which yeah. is and, crazy. And you think, so, so, the, so the Holy, so the, but the implication there is, yep. well, that must mean that any group that gets together that calls itself a Christian church, the Holy Spirit will work within that group. And of course, the Holy Spirit does work within mm-hmm. all of the churches, but, but, but will will work in that way so as they'll it will bring them to all truth. The problem is is that you have any number of denominations that that have totally contrary views on very key issues. The only things that they really particularly seem to agree on are the things that they have inherited. <clears throat> Those particular beliefs say in the Nicene Creed, which was declared by the Catholic Church in 325, or the Apostles' Creed, which is again another Catholic Church. Uh, statement and all these historic creeds where the church was where there was only one church and it was really binding together these particular fundamental beliefs that holds everyone together but then starting with the reformation you see the fraying start to come you know it, it just starts to fray and people are going in many different directions so that now today we have some churches that i mean they they've just completely gone off the reservation and and uh, yeah. and have opened it up and said well we can believe the bible or just our heart or we can add books to the Bible. I mean, there's any number of different views. In fact, I was just reading John Calvin's Institutes recently because I was preparing for a talk, and he essentially, along with Luther, redefined 
how you identify a church. They talked about this invisible nature, but in terms of the a visible church, how you would determine whether a local visible church was in truth a church. He defined it as a place where the the gospel is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly performed, right. which leaves it up question. to <laughs> the individual to decide whether they like the preacher or whether they like the way the sacraments are being right. done. I mean, ultimately, and, you, and you've pointed to it, and this is one of the things I really wrestle with, when you say, well, I go where the gospel is preached, then you have to say, but, but right, but how do you know that the gospel is being faithfully preached to there? Mm-hmm. And, they would, and the answer would always be, well... Um, you know, read the scriptures on your own and, and listen to your heart and pray and this type of thing. And people obviously should do that. I mean, you should be reading your scriptures and you should be praying and you should be asking for the leading of the Holy Spirit. But when we're talking about confidence that I know for sure that, you know, when the church speaks as the church, it, you know, it can give me this confidence. If it's ultimately just right back up to me again, and I became increasingly uncomfortable with the notion that I was my own, basically my own pope. <laughs> Yeah, um, because that that didn't give me any confidence whatsoever, and it didn't give me any very good argument at all. When yeah. if I was discussing things with people, and they say, "Well, who are you to tell me what the gospel is?" Yeah. Um, and that's a and that's a big problem. But then ultimately, and we'll go ahead and kind of walk to uh, to this issue of the papacy because it came down to okay, I can see the need for a church. I understand the historic and and remember, it was this way for fifteen hundred years yeah. from the very beginning. There was an authoritative identifiable, known church. The church was where the bishop was. There, there weren't any other churches for 1,500 years, and it's hard to really grasp that. Because we've, lived, say, we've oh, lived under a different mindset, you and I, and a lot of our audience. Oh, actually, Mark, I want to take a break. Sure. Okay, let's come back, and I want to come back square with both feet on the issue of the papacy, because I think okay. that's exactly where you're leading us, and I want to make sure right. our audience gets a chance to examine that. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Groda. I am joined today by Mark Ayers, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International, or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at one 800 664 Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined today by Mark Ayers. And Mark, we're going to look at the papacy, uh, which certainly was an aspect of authority that neither you nor I ever considered for the biggest part of our early life. Right. Um, Yeah, I, I wanted to turn to that because that's you know, ultimately, this whole question about an authoritative body that had existed uh, that can speak with authority still needs a, cent- a center. I mean, ultimately, there's got to be a, a center there that that guides and directs. And even though that that question seemed very strange to me, but but uh, but I ultimately saw no. You you basically have to have that. For example, in the early church, sometimes you'd have local synods or or uh, or, or different groups say things. 
and you needed someone with the authority to say this is proper and this isn't and that that's in fact what happened throughout history um but then you know another verse that speaks to this that i had read over several times and really didn't know much to do with was matthew 16:19 that'll be very familiar to many of your listeners this is where jesus is giving peter the uh, the the so-called keys of the kingdom uh, this is right after uh, jesus had said you know who, basically taking a gallup poll who 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 are who are what are people saying about me you know who who do people say that i am and ultimately, uh, Peter stands as the spokesman for the apostles, as he did over and over and over again uh, in, in Scripture, and said, you know, we know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say <clears throat> that, uh, um, that he will, I, I want to have it here in front of me, um, Where is it? I think I've walked right past it. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. He's talking to Peter. Mm -hmm. He changes his name to Peter, which means rock. You know, he says, and then upon this rock I will build my church, and then then proceeds to give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And and you just think, wow, if you really just read it for on face value, that's an (laughs) astounding Mm -hmm. comment that he's... he changes his name to Rock. He says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Then he hands him a set of keys. And, you know, there's, there was always back and forth about what does the rock mean, who is really the rock. Well, I mean, any reasonable reader is going to say, well, he just called him Rock, and then he uses the word Rock, says, upon this rock, the one that I just mentioned, I'm going to build my church. He's, he's and I, I, again, I'm looking back on this after coming to the realization that there has to be a head, mm-hmm. there has to be a body with a head that goes on throughout history that can speak to us, that can guide us. Um, and then, you know, looking back on this verse, one of the things that I was astounded to find was that Jesus was actually quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 22, which you also have on, on the website, mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that at all. I didn't really know what to make of this passage. And again, I think I just kind of read right past it. I think I read it in just kind of general terms of, well, he, you know, he gave him authority because he's an apostle and so forth. No, but he was not giving that to the to the rest of the group. You know, he, he's saying, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. If you take it seriously, it's amazing. But the passage in Isaiah 22 that even, as I learned later, many Protestant scholars admit, and Jesus is in fact quoting from this, mm-hmm. uh, and I would encourage you know, your listeners to go and, and take a look at it. God is saying to a, a steward, a steward at, at, at that time of the house of David, you know, David, the Davidic king uh, uh, of, you know, of Israel, he is saying uh, the, the the steward's name was at that point Shebna, and he was kind of an evil steward. And the steward meaning like a prime minister, the no, the number two in the kingdom that would rule while if David was gone. And uh, and he says, I'm going to put you out. And he says, in that day I will call my my servant Eliakim, in other words, to give him your seat. And he says, I will clothe him with your robe and, and bind your girdle on him and commit your authority to his hand. And goes on to say. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. It's a direct quote. This is exactly what, what Christ is talking about. In other words, Christ knows he's getting ready to ascend. He's not going to be, if Christ was on earth, and this would all be very easy, we would all just sit at Christ's feet and that would be the end of it. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to leave you a prime minister so that you can be one, which he prays for in the garden before the crucifixion. It's his main prayer that they would be one. 
so that you might know for sure the truth, which again is another continual biblical injunction that we might know. Here is one that will, that will lead with my Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you and direct you in this way, and he's, that's, he's doing exactly what was going on in Isaiah. Is He's saying, I'm going to leave a prime minister, I'm going to give him the keys to the kingdom, and he's going to have my authority on earth. And, and in Isaiah it goes on to say, and I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him the whole weight of his father's house, and so forth. This idea of a firm peg, a fixed point, by which we can always look back to and say, okay, I mean, even during the times where the church has had terrible warts, and there's no doubt, there's been plenty of warts throughout history, <laughs> and we could point to any number of historical well, examples. When you and I joined the church, uh, we didn't help the matter any. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, there's no doubt that there are human beings in this, but no. if we don't have something that we can look at and say, well, notwithstanding that, I can have the confidence that, that God is still direct. It's a big ship, and there can be squabbles on the deck, but I can have confidence that this ship is going to end up in that port mm-hmm. because it's the Holy Spirit ultimately is driving the ship, even when it's hard to see sometimes. That's what's going on, and that's what God is saying. He's like, look, you don't have to know absolutely everything. All you have to know is I'm going to leave a prime minister. He might not be the greatest personal guy in the world, but I am not going to let him drive the church into heresy, which has never happened in 2,000 years, even though you've had some of the world's worst individuals in there as as popes. But they did not lead the church into heresy. In fact, they've stood against this now, and I think people are more and more seeing this idea of the fixed peg um, and, and but but it's not just I can give you some some reasons why you should believe that these popes have been good popes. It's if you don't have that, it's the impossibility of the contrary. Yeah. If you don't have as a as a as a presupposition that there is an identifiable center that is guided by God and specially protected by God on these matters of faith and morals to to instruct, to lead, to teach, then we're lost. Ultimately, it's just every man for himself. And, and I came to that realization, there is no middle ground there. Mm-hmm. It's just me and my Bible, which I don't really have much confidence that, I, yep. that, that, is, that it's complete or correct or anything like that. But I'm just going to believe it, and I'm just going to read it, and it's just going to be me and God. And Mark- ultimately, I, I felt, wait, that, that can't be it. And then over a period of time, just to sum up, all of those objections that I had, kind of the standard objections mm-hmm. to the Catholic faith that made me very uneasy, um, and when, the more that I learned about them, the more I realized, oh, these are actually quite beautiful and biblical and, and, and historical. So, um, but no, it was that notion of, I, it's not just a good thing to have, you have to have a fixed body, an authoritative body that exists throughout the centuries that can speak with authority or else we don't really have much, much confidence or reason to believe for the hope that we have, which is what First Peter 3.15 says. I mean, right. We're supposed to give a reason, but we have to have a foundation, a rock on which to stand on, and we have that mm-hmm. in the church. Mark, we've got just a few moments, uh, but I wanted you to, if you could, just step back for a second. Imagine yourself listening to this program the way you were as a conservative Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. How would you have responded to the stuff you just said? Uh, how would you break through to help them hear the truth of what you've been saying? Uh, I, I would have responded basically because what I, the overall point for me was that I thought I knew a lot about the Catholic Church but had never actually read a Catholic document, mm-hmm. not once. 
Um, And so I had a lot of just kind of preconceptions up there about all these horrible things that the Catholics really believed. Um, And I would first just say, put put that on hold first. You don't have to get into this big philosophical argument that I'm you know going through right now. Just I, I would say first maybe go to like the Catholic Answers website or or you know one of the others. There's a lot of information out there and just. Take a minute and read, for example, what the Church teaches about Mary and why, or read about the papacy and, and, its, and its history. Read about how the great Church Fathers, for example, St. Augustine, who was a huge, and he's probably the number one Church Father in all of Presbyterianism. We, we loved him. We relied on everything he said. He held to the papacy very yep. strongly. Mm-hmm. He saw it. This is the, and he's, remember, this is hundreds of years removed from Peter. And he said that that seat. The seat of Peter is the center here. And when he speaks, whoever is in that seat, he speaks with the authority of Peter and the authority of Christ, because he's, it's needed to lead the church. Read what he said about Mary, how he held to the perpetual virginity of Mary and, and Mary's uh, immaculate conception, and all of these weird things that we really kind of peeled back from. Read what these ancient church fathers, who we all loved, Read what they say, and after a while you think, oh, that's the reason. For example, and we don't have time to get into this, but just a couple of the verses that are also listed, uh, the uh, the comparison. I would really encourage people to look up, and you can just Google this if you want, but Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, and compare Luke 139-56 to Second Samuel 6, where Luke is making it very clear that he's drawing a line between Mary, who's coming with, uh, with, you know, who's pregnant with with Jesus, coming to Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, and the Ark coming to David, he virtually quotes Second Samuel to make it very clear that this is the, you know, that was the Ark of the Old Testament that came to David, and he was very excited and blessed the household and all this. This is the Ark of the New Covenant that comes with God within her to bless uh, to bless the house. It's a fascinating thing, but there are the Bible is full of these things. That when I started to to sort through them, I realized, oh wait a minute, it's at least reasonable. It's at least not crazy, and then I can deal with some of these more fundamental things. But first, I would ask people to just take a deep breath, <laughs> don't be afraid. <laughs> look, look at some of the just the, the you know the standard anti-Catholic distinctions, and read what Catholics really really think. That's the thing. It's really uh, finding out. You know, Mark. Sadly, we've run out of time, but you wanted to ask for prayer. I did. I have a, a, a nephew. Uh, I know my sister and her brother-in-law, and uh, and my nephew and niece are, are listening and wanted to say that, that we love them. Uh, he has been diagnosed with a uh, with a with a brain tumor and and is going through that and has been very brave and he's gonna gonna beat that. But they're down at the Arnold Palmer Hospital in Orlando. What's his first uh, name? Just his name is Noah. Okay. Noah Larkin. I just uh-huh. wanted to ask for prayers for him. Please, everyone, a, right now, offer. A prayer of, uh, of guidance and, and protection and healing for Noah. And, uh, and we promise to do that, all of us listening. Mark, thank you for joining us on this program and for your apologetics. And everybody else listening, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture and EWTN. God bless you. Be with you again next week.